What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from, the, from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, good morning, Covenant. I hope you have your Christmas shopping done because if you haven't been out lately, it's a little nutty out there. And uh, I would not want to be just getting started, that's for sure. Uh, that was a great video. And, uh, you know, since uh, Mark and Amy made that video just uh, a few weeks ago, they now have another foster child. So uh, <laughs> Mark will be praying for you guys. And I'm going to ask something at the close of the service. Mark, if you would uh, go over to our Connect table. And if you are here and you might be interested in just getting more information about what does it take to become a foster parent? Uh, you know, we have hundreds of children in foster care in Brevard County already, and they are always, the, the Brevard the Family Partnership is always looking for more families. And they have reached out to our church and other churches asking for families like uh, the Han, Hans and so many of us, would you please consider being foster parents? And there's a great support system uh, within our community to do this. And if you would like to have more information, I, I'm just going to ask, I'm putting Mark and Amy on the spot, to, and they're giving me the thumbs up. They can tell you how to get involved in it and, and what it takes, you know, and how much does it cost, you know, and, and what kind of financial support does, that does the state help so that it doesn't drain you? And just any types of questions that you may have, just practical questions. They've been living it now for a while. They can probably answer it, okay? So uh, stop by and see about that uh, after the service. You know, out of the uh, many analogies that Paul draws from in his many books in the New Testament, the one analogy that tends to kind of make people uncomfortable and disturbs modern day individuals is the analogy of slavery. And this is understandable, especially as we consider our own nation's uh, history and the horrific abuses that took place here in our nation with slavery. And as a nation, we still, you know, we deal with the wounds and from the sins of our ancestors because of the institution of slavery. But let's realize this morning that slavery is, uh, and human trafficking, it's, it's still very much alive and well in our nation and all around the world. Uh, today, it's estimated that there are approximately 30 million people enslaved 
around the world. Um, I guarantee you in Palm Bay right now, there are people who are living in modern day slavery. If you know what to look for, uh, massage parlors, many times, uh, I hate to say it, some of these manicure, pedicure places, they are modern day places where slavery and human trafficking takes place. Uh, all kinds of ind- different kinds of businesses in our community are often fronts for this type of activity. It's actually the third largest criminal enterprise in the world behind the drug trade and arms trafficking. Uh, Just a few statistics to give you an idea. This comes from the World Counts Project. Approximately 800,000 people a year are illegally trafficked across international borders. This doesn't count people who are being smuggled across borders because they want to move into a different country. These are people who are coerced into leaving their nation and going to another place. 161 countries are affected by human trafficking. The total profit every year from this enterprise is $32 billion. The majority of modern slavery victims are between the ages of 18 and 24 years old. 1.2 million children are enslaved uh, through uh, labor or the sex industry each year. In 1850, the cost of getting a slave and owning that slave in today's dollars was $40,000. Today, the cost is $90. So it has become an incredibly efficient economic way to enslave people. 78% of modern day slaves are in what industry? What industry do you think it is? Okay, guess. Um, and some of you said sex, I saw. No, 22% are in the sex industry. 78% are in the labor industry. And in the labor industry, the biggest offender is the fashion industry. Uh, 55% of modern day slaves are women and girls. 45% are men and boys. 26% of modern day slaves are children under the age of 18. Okay, so about 8 million of today's slaves are children. If you enslave a person, for example, in Southeast Asia, the odds of you are better for you being struck by lightning than for you being arrested and ever doing jail time. The odds aren't much better in the United States. Uh, this is a, a crime that very rarely ever gets convicted. I bring this to you because Here we are dealing in a passage that talks about slavery, and we think of slavery as being something that's in our past, but it's actually something that's very much in our present. And the Roman Christians, uh, while we may be oblivious to slavery by and large, the Roman Christians were not. A third of the Roman Empire were slaves. Uh, At any given time, one half of the Roman Empire were either past or present slaves. So when Paul wrote this letter to this church, a good percentage of this church were either actively or had been slaves, or they certainly were affected by slaves. They may have even some of them were slave owners. And many Roman slaves, now they had options that, uh, you know, American slaves did not have, but make no mistake about it, the system of slavery in the Roman Empire was incredibly cruel, costing millions and millions of individuals their lives. Yet, in this passage, Paul uses this cultural situation to communicate an important truth as it relates to our sanctification. 
he's answering yet another argument. An argument uh, and an objection to the good news of God's grace that comes through Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he was answering an argument that came from the perspective of the libertine. The person who was basically saying, um, all right, if God is glorified by showing and pouring out his grace, and God pours out his grace when we sin, ergo, we should sin more so God can pour out his grace and be glorified, right? And when Paul was presented with that objection or that, that perspective, he goes, are you out of your mind? Not at all. If you understand the gospel in any way, shape, or form, you understand that we are dead to sin because we've been united to Christ. And the first 14 verses, he's dealing with the perspective of the libertine, And he ends in verse 14 with the expression, for we are not under the law, but under grace. And that brings us to verse 15 to a different perspective. Not the perspective of the libertine, but the perspective of the legalist, the person who looks to the law for being made right with God. The legalist has to object to verse 14. When a legalist hears an expression like, we're not under the law, but under grace, their head explodes. Happens today. Uh, in fact, even in our church, sometimes it's, it's been said, and I've experienced it by uh, pastors of, of, of your in the past, that if a pastor is not at times deemed by either the libertine or the legalist, you're not preaching the gospel, right? Uh, if you're not getting it from both ends of the spectrum, you're not preaching the gospel. And so it's interesting how sometimes uh, through the years, even here, past churches, I will get it from some people who are saying, you're just coming down too hard on us. I mean, after all, we're under grace, baby. You know, they're they're all about the liberty and the freedom and don't call on me to be holy and live a a righteous life. That's the liberty. But then they get it from the other side of the perspective. It's like, but wait a second. You know, what about this? And And, And it's all about law. And these two extremes are here. The legalist has to object to verse 14. And so in verse 15, Paul is vocalizing their objection. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? This is the objection of the legalist. Remember, we're dealing with sanctification, this growth in holiness, this battle that we have against sin, this progressive struggle. How do we live the Christian life in a way that brings honor to glory and glory to God? Sanctification and our struggles with sin. And so the legalist says, what? Are we just to continue in sin since we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace? Uh, Essentially, to put it in this expression, Paul, I I mean, come on. You say we're now under grace and not the law, so answer me this, Mr. Smarty Pants. Without the law, without allegiance to law, what's to stop us from sinning? Without having a list of what we're supposed to do and not to do, how are we supposed to live our lives? I mean, you're calling on us to be holy and to be sanctified Christians. I need a rule book, thank you very much. Give me the manual that tells me how to do this thing. That's the legalist, okay? And so Paul, in this passage this morning, is his answer to this objection. 
and to help these Romans understand this element of sanctification, he pulls from this system of slavery, which they would understand so well. The passage teaches us something important. It teaches us that since Christians have a new master, we do not want liberty to sin. What we want instead is power to live a holy life. So we're going to see that this morning as we unpack the passage. I want to make several gospel applications from our text. First, coming from verse 16, every human being is a slave to something and someone. Every human being is a slave to something and someone. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Every person is either a slave to sin and self, or a slave to God and righteousness. Now that language is really objectionable to us as Americans, because we are free, and we glory in our freedom. But what Paul is saying here is nothing more than a restatement of what Jesus teaches in several places. Jesus, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 31, speaking to the Israelites, says uh, this to them, uh, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The idea here that Jesus is getting at is whatever we are pursuing and giving ourselves over to, in this instance, if our life is for giving ourselves up to sin and practicing sin, inevitably it's indicating who we're worshiping and what we're worshiping, and we become enslaved to it. In Matthew chapter 6, he gives a very practical example of this, says it in a different way. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, you cannot love, literally, God and money. We all give ourselves up to something and to someone. For many, the someone that we give ourselves up to is self, right? It's all about who? Me. And this is what we do. Jesus' example, for example, money. This is just one of many examples. We love money. For many of us, we love money or we love material things. This is our highest good. We need to use Paul's language in verse 16. We present ourselves to it. We give ourselves over to it. It's our priority. We pursue it to such an end that we end up, to use Paul's words, presenting ourselves like a sacrifice. We are worshiping it. We love it. We pursue it. Our energy, our drive, our affections, our attention all go towards this. We center much of our lives around it. 
And Jesus says, and what Paul is saying, when this, the love of money, greed, in this example, when we give ourselves up to it, it becomes our master and we become its slave. Every one of us, we all give ourselves over to something and to someone. Now, for some of us, it's not money. For some of us, it's, it's acceptance. And we offer ourselves up and we pursue acceptance to such a degree that we will do almost anything to get that acceptance and approval from other people. And in the pursuit of that acceptance, we become slaves to acceptance. It may be ambition, or it may be security, or comfort, any number of things. But the point here is all of us are going to be slaves to something or someone. So the question this morning is, what's your choice of slavery? Will, your sla- will you be a slave to sin, which brings death? Death here isn't just the physical loss of your life. It's the horrors and the devastation and the brokenness that sin brings into our lives. It's the loss of life the vitality of life that ultimately can culminate in the the separation of our life and our soul from God itself for all of eternity. Will you be that kind of slave, a slave to sin, which brings about death, or will you be a slave to obedience? These are the two options in the passage. These are the two ways. When we think of obedience, It's kind of interesting. He says, will you obey sin or will you obey obedience? That's a weird way to put it, literally. But if you think about it, he's going back to to Romans chapter 1, the very beginning, verse 5. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. This is the choice we all have obedience to the gospel call which leads to righteousness or obedience to sin what isn't a choice to be clear what isn't a choice is autonomous freedom we're gonna either be slaves to sin or slaves to God so choose your slavery which will it be One leads to death, and one leads to life. Now, this is hard for us to get our heads around because we're all about freedom. But this is where the scriptures challenge our thinking and our worldview. And so the question is, which will we believe? Will we believe what God's word says that in reality we are born slaves to sin? And that our only hope is Jesus Christ so that we can become slaves of Christ and experience life? Or will we insist on our autonomy? Every human being is a slave to something and someone. Second application, verse 17 and 18, because of our commitment to Christ, we are now slaves to what is right. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So in verse 16, Paul puts before us the situation that every one of us faces, the choice that every one of us has. Some of you may be new here this morning. Maybe you've come with a friend. 
Maybe you walked in these doors because you're seeking answers in your life. And maybe out of everything that I just I'm going to say today, the part of the message was for you was what I just said, that there's two choices, slavery to sin or slavery to Christ. One brings death, one brings life. Which one do you want? Jesus offers life. And that may be all that the reason why you're here this morning. And if that's why you're here, I hope you'll hunt us up at the close of the service. But the rest of this passage, Paul kind of comes, brings the, the, the Romans back around. He says, listen, now I want to talk to you, Romans. I'm shifting his attention. He's reminding the Romans. He's reminding all of us who've trusted in Christ, right, that things are different for us as it relates to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Thanks be to God that you who were, past tense, once slaves to sin. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you were once slaves to sin. So now he's shifting attention, shifting perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ugh, hate this time of the year. You're once slaves of, have been, slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. The word for standard is important. It's the word tupas. And a, a lot of times in the New Testament, it's a very generic word. It can mean the gospel, all of the gospel teaching, right? And sometimes people interpret that here. They're saying, okay, what the Roman Christians, they've become conformed to the gospel as a whole, and they, they, uh, they are obedient from the heart to the gospel. I think that Paul has something more specific in mind here. And this word is important to us. So, uh, I was reminded of it last Sunday after church. Uh, Catherine and MJ and I, we went out and got lunch, and after lunch, um, we swung through Wassie's meat market. Um, if you've never been to Wasi's meat market on Minton, it is a bad, bad place for guys who like to grill, okay? And, and Catherine knows, Catherine had never been in there before. She just knows that I've dumped a lot of money that place through the years. And so she went in with me. I went in just to get a little jar of, of, of relish. I was, I was smoking a ham. I was going to make a glaze for my ham. Jacob was coming home and doing dinner. And, and by the way, I had a picture of that ham for hashtag food art to put up on the stage of the screen for you this morning. And I took it out at the last minute because I didn't want to torture you um, before lunch. Because it really was beautiful and it tasted good. Uh, so, but Catherine wanted to go in with me, so she goes in with me, and um, uh, we go into Wasi's Meat Market, and they have all these beautiful grills and these tables, and you know, and all this. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is pretty smart, bringing my wife into Wasi's Meat Market around Christmas time. You know, Santa might be pretty good to me as a result of this. And as we go along, wouldn't you know it? In God's cosmic sense of humor, the first thing she sees is this grill grate insert. Uh, a stainless steel grill insert for a big green egg my size, and it is the logo for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Right? And for those of you who don't know, I, I've been from day one a Jaguars fan, which means my NFL seasons always stink, right? Because we've been losing for 15 years or more. And so she turns to me and goes, look at that. Would you like to have that for your grill? You know? And uh, I said, you know, baby, I, I watch the Jaguars and I commiserate with the Jaguars. 
but there is no way I'm going to desecrate a ribeye and put that logo on that piece of meat. Not going to happen, right? But what was neat about that grate, and then as we worked our way through the, worked our way through Wasis, they had these cutting boards, you know, where like designs had been burned into the cutting boards, and you could get anything, you know, like master, dad, chef, or, you know, any kind of, any type of stuff, and they can burn it into it. You know, have you seen those kinds of things? That's the word tupas. See, tupas was a, like a metal rod, a, a tool that had have a design on the end of it, and you would put it against a surface, and then with overwhelming force, you would pound on it in order to put that, uh, that, that drawing imprint and put it onto the surface that you were applying it. And so what we have here is this idea that we have become obedient to something that with overwhelming power has been imprinted onto our heart. What is that thing? That these Roman Christians and us by extension, the standard of teaching, this thing that has been imprinted on our heart that is so important that it changes the direction of our life. I would contend it is that fundamental truth of the gospel. It brings us into the family of God. It deals with our salvation and it deals with our sanctification. Those, those three little words, Jesus is what? Lord. Because when you understand Jesus as Lord, it brings you into the kingdom of God and it affects how you interact with sin. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed, committed literally and to which you were delivered. Once again, Paul is reminding us that our sanctification is grounded in our justification which was solely an act of God's intervening grace. He changes us at the heart level so that we, that our obedience that we have, it isn't due to the outward pressure of the law. We don't need the outward pressure of the law. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't need cultural coercion. And by the way, we don't need self-made modern versions of the Mosaic law to sanctify us. We have this internal reality that has occurred. Our will has been changed. God has done this incredible act in our lives. Here's what's happened. God has literally, through the divine rebirth, given us a new wanter. We used to want to sin. We used to want to do those things that pleased the flesh. We wanted to do anything other than that which pleased God. But when Christ moves in through the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us a new heart, the wanter, the will, has changed. And now we want to obey. We want to live right to the standard of teaching to which you were, have committed and to which you were delivered. In verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Paul, without the law, how will we ever not sin? Don't you understand, Romans? Salvation is not a license to sin. Salvation leads us to do what is right. It gives us the power to obey. Because now we're slaves 
to Christ. And when you're a slave to Christ, you're a slave to what is right. One final application this morning, verse 19, the fullest and freest life we can ever have comes through enslavement to God. In verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What's he getting at here? There's actually a really encouraging message here. He says, the reality of sin is this. The more you get into sin, the deeper sin takes you. And you will spiral down more and more into sin. This is the trajectory of sin. Be encouraged. The trajectory of sanctification, it may start out slow. But you are involved in a process that is going to culminate in God declaring you holy and you becoming what God has declared you to be. It's going to happen. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no, before Christ, you had no internal compulsion to do what is right. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul is getting at our motivation here. Remember, this is the question. Why should we not, how are we not going to sin without the law? Our motivation to not sin, right here, he stresses, here's the motivation. Remember what life was like without Christ. Remember what your life was like when you were a slave to sin. Remember what sin brought you. When you're a slave to sin, you have the illusion of freedom. Freedom is an illusion, and what it actually brings you in the end is grim. I remember as a young man hearing a sermon from an evangelist, and I can still remember his three points about sin. He said, sin will take you farther than you ever want to go. He said, secondly, sin will always keep you at a place much longer than you ever want to stay. And then thirdly, he said, sin always makes you pay a price higher than you ever intended to pay. This is what sin does. Keller is more succinct. Keller, Tim Keller says, sin is a master who always pays on time and in full. If you want motivation, Paul says, you don't need the Mosaic law. Just remember what your life was like when you were a slave to sin. Remember what sin did to you. Remember what kind of life and what pain and devastation and discouragement and disillusionment it brought into your life. Why would you choose to go back into that kind of life? For now, verse 22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We don't need to return to the Mosaic law. And church, you do not need me to stand up here and give you some man-created, self-imposed list of do's and don'ts. I was raised in that kind of system of Christianity where, where we were taught and told what we could wear and couldn't wear and where, what kind of music we could listen to and couldn't listen to. And 
And, and I'm so glad I'm not in that anymore because now we can have guitar duets like we had this morning. Amen. That was awesome. And, uh, you know, and just the, the list of do's and don'ts was so long that I remember being raised in that, that I wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I came this close just to walking away from faith. Legalism kills. And, and we don't need that anymore. Instead, what he says here in this verse, just remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember who you serve. You are God's slave. He bought you. What we have here in the second half of Romans chapter 6 is nothing more than a restatement of what we looked at in Romans chapter 1 or 6, the first half of Romans chapter 6. He's just using a different analogy. But the truth is still the same. The key to having victory over sin is preaching the gospel of who you are in Jesus Christ to yourself. And when confronted with temptation, remembering who you belong to. Who do you serve? Paul to the Corinthians would say it like this. Remember. Notice how again, remember, remember. No, no, no. Remember. These words show up all the time. Remember. If you were a slave when the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. And if you were free in the Lord, and, and see, you're now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you're now a slave of Christ. He says to the Corinthians, hey, listen, right now, in your human life, you may be a slave, but that's not who you are. You're in Jesus Christ, which means you have this incredible freedom that's far greater and far more precious than any human freedom you could ever obtain in this realm. And he says to those who are free and not slaves, oh, understand your freedom is not autonomous freedom. We're all slaves to Jesus Christ. How does this hit us this week? This week, when you're done wrong, for example, someone says something to you, and it's hurtful. Maybe they lie about you or they slander you. You're going to have the option of offering yourself as a slave to God or as a slave to sin. Is God going to be the one who you pursue? Is God going to be the one who you love? Are you going to offer yourself up? Is he going to be your highest good? Is what he says about you going to frame your response to that offense? Are you going to build your life around the truth? The declaration of the gospel. Are you going to remember that I do not belong to myself? I belong to Christ who bought me with his blood. If so, when that happens, God is going to be your master and you are going to respond to that offense appropriately. You won't sin. So be humble. You may even listen to what they say, and you, you may dissect all the horrible stuff and get to the grain of maybe a legitimate aspect of the criticism. You may respond with love. 
You certainly won't respond with vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay, right? You'll, you'll, you'll pray for them. You won't hate, you'll love. It just changes our response, right? Or you'll defend yourself. You'll attack. You'll hit back. You'll lash back. We'll give ourselves, a, I, I have to protect myself I have to look good. If, if we give ourselves to that, if that's our higher priority, then that's what we're going to pursue. We become a slave to sin, and it drives our response, and we, we harm our testimony. We sin. We do damage. That's the choice. He says, remember, you're a slave to Christ, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The good news here, church, is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. The Christian life can be so frustrating. Sometimes you get slandered, done wrong, and you remember who you are. You offer yourself up to God. You respond well, and God is glorified. 20 minutes later, you go ballistic and your head explodes and you go off and you look like, what on earth happened? It can be so frustrating, can it? But God's grace is greater than those temporary moments of insanity and forgetfulness. He remembers and he loves us. The gift of grace brings the fullest, most free life we can ever have. It brings eternal life. It reminds us we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer under the bondage of the Mosaic law. We're slaves to God, and we live under this life-giving grace. So in light of this, Romans 6.23, why would we ever say yes to the temptations of sin? In light of this, why would we ever say no to God? In light of God's grace, this kind of life that he gives us, what can sin possibly offer us this week that is better than what we've already been given in Jesus Christ? Absolutely nothing. May God give us the grace that we need to remember it at the point of attack this week. Amen. Father, would you give us that grace to remember who we are Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit who uh, whispers in our ear. Sometimes he has to scream because we're thick-headed, reminding us that we are your children, that we belong to you, that you've given us a life that nothing in this world can possibly compare with. Uh, Lord, give us the grace that we need to rest and appropriate this truth at the moment of temptation. Lord, give us the grace that we need to be humble when we fail and to cry out and confess our failures and our sinfulness to you. And give us the grace that we need to be quick to forget our sin and to rest in your forgiveness. And Lord, I thank you for this church that I get to pastor. God, would you continue to work in our church? Would the aroma of your grace just pervade this church? 
When new people come into this church, will they sense that this is a place where they can be real, they can struggle with sin, they can come as they are, but through your grace, they will not stay where they are. But you will move them more and more to resemble the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us that kind of church, I would ask, Lord Jesus, that humbly rest in your grace at the foot of the cross. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.